Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. After listening to this week's new Bowery Boys episode, check out the podcast For the Ages, produced by the New York Historical Society, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein speaks with the nation's most interesting and respected historians and creative thinkers on a wide range of topics. Past conversations have included Pulitzer Prize winner Robert Caro, offering a first-hand perspective on his writing process. Ron Chernow on his biography of Hamilton and his involvement with the musical. Author Lillian Faderman discussing the history of the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement. And New York Times Chief White House Correspondent Peter Baker and Susan Glasser on the life and legacy of James Baker, one of the most influential power brokers in American history. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 396, Samuel Tilden and the election of 1876. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers, and today we're taking a look at one of the most scandalous events in American political history, the presidential election of 1876, a ballot that featured Republican nominee Rutherford B. Hayes and Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden. I'm sure that many of you know at least some part of this story. This is a pretty insane moment in American history, Mm -hmm. and the election of 1876 often gets evoked when describing um, some events in modern times. But perhaps a few of you are asking, why, Greg and Tom, why are the Bowery Boys talking about this specifically? (laughs) Well, for one thing, Samuel Tilden, the Democratic candidate, was a New Yorker, and in fact, he was the governor of New York State when he ran. And he lived in a beautiful mansion overlooking Gramercy Park, which we'll actually be visiting today and walking through at the end of our show. That'll be fun. But also, on the days leading up to the election and on the election night itself, the center of political power in America rested here in New York City. And it was really focused between two locations near Union Square and Madison Square. The date was November 7th, 1876, Election Day, 
and the sun was setting over New York City just as the polls were closing, the gaslights beginning to glow along Fifth Avenue. After months of tense and bitter campaigning, voters were truly anxious about the outcome, and thousands now gathered in halls and around newspaper offices. In every bar and restaurant, from McSorley's Old Ale House to DeMonico's, the election was the only thing people were talking about. At the Democratic campaign headquarters, located in a hotel at Broadway and 17th Street, the public greeted Samuel Tilden in a shower of accolades and well wishes. The wine and champagne was being uncorked as election results were coming in via the telegraph, and the night looked very good for their candidate, the governor of New York. Victory seemed to be at hand. Tilden bid them farewell and headed back to his home, that sumptuous mansion on the south side of Gramercy Park. His home was buzzing with activity. After all, wasn't this now the home of a president-elect? The governor went to bed that night, surely thinking he had won the election of 1876. But late in the night, at the Republican campaign headquarters, located in the Fifth Avenue Hotel on Madison Square, and only a few blocks away from the Democratic headquarters, a bit of chicanery was afoot that would call everything into question. Late into that night, two men visited the headquarters who would change history, one a political operative with a murderous reputation, and the other a meddling newspaper editor. These two men set in motion a constitutional crisis, and its outcome would ultimately spell the end of Reconstruction in the South. In the words of author Roy Morris Jr., it was an election that did little credit to anyone except perhaps its ultimate loser. So join us here in the streets of New York as we explore the traumatic and scandalous story of the election of 1876. So today's show has both a wide-angle lens and a close-up lens, as we'll be talking about a national presidential election, but also events on one single night in New York City. So how exactly are you going to start with the situation here? I know that you want to get immediately to Tilden's gorgeous Gramercy Park mansion, and so do I, and also all the you know, crazy shenanigans that were happening over at the Fifth Avenue Hotel that we just alluded to, and we will get there. But in order to make sense of any of that, I think that we'd better pull back and look for a moment at the country as a whole. All right. The United States in the year 1876, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, just happened to be a very special year as it was the country's centennial celebration. That's right. Yeah, it was the 100-year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which was celebrated, of course, with great fanfare, as they used to do back in the day, in Philadelphia with a six-month-long centennial exposition. This was the first World's Fair, really, ever to be held in the United States. This 100-year anniversary would have, of course, been reason enough to celebrate, But on top of that, the Civil War, which had so painfully divided the country, had only ended 11 years before. So 
many Americans, I think it's safe to say, looked to 1876 and to this big centennial celebration as a moment to possibly come together, as a moment of possible healing and to, to celebrate the country that had survived this terrible war. Unfortunately, this would not be a year of healing, however. Mm -mm. Those 11 years, actually, since the war had been pretty dramatic. Yeah, following the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, big questions needed to be answered. Like, how should the southern states, which seceded from the country, be readmitted to the country? And what about former Confederate officers and officials? And, and then later on in 1870, how could the 15th Amendment, which granted African-American males the right to vote, how could it be enforced in the South? So grappling with all of these issues and, and readmitting states and protecting these new rights was called Reconstruction. A period of enormous changes socially and politically around the country. And these would play into the election of 1876. And some of these are a bit counterintuitive to us today. For example, in the early 1870s, most Southern state governments were controlled by Republicans. That is, the Republican Party of Lincoln. You know, this makes sense when you consider that 700,000 freedmen throughout the South could now vote starting in 1870. And, and at least at the beginning, nearly all of them were voting Republican. So the Southern Democratic Party, nearly all white, had almost completely lost power. And in Washington, meanwhile, you had Republican President Ulysses S. Grant, uh, well, he won the election in 1868, and then he was reelected in 1872. He would, although Grant's two terms would be messy. They would be defined by the heated debate over Reconstruction in the South, um, increasing violence against blacks in the South by Southern Democrats, and also by a list of scandals, many financial scandals involving people high up in his administration. And, oh yeah, also by the Panic of 1873, which was a financial crisis that lasted for several years in the United States um, and caused unemployment and huge wage cuts and certainly wouldn't help him. Americans were scared about money. They were tired of political scandals in the White House. And meanwhile, by 1876 in the South, the Democratic Party had regained power and had t retaken control over most southern states. Given the circumstances, how did they manage that? Uh, do you have a few hours? <laughs> you could check out Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. But let's just say there are many reasons for Democrats retaking control around the country, and especially in the South, despite the fact that hundreds of thousands of freedmen could now vote. There was widespread voter intimidation in the South by, by Southern Democrats, uh, blacks prevented from voting or votes tossed out. Um, and there was horrible, chilling violence committed against blacks, like the uh, Colfax massacre in Louisiana in 1873, in which more than 100 black men were killed. There was the rise of white supremacist organizations, like the Ku Klux Klan, there was also violence committed against white Southerners who were voting Republican. And so already in the midterms of 1874, Democrats were retaking control around the country 
um, because there was this general fatigue and dissatisfaction with the Republican Party. Um, and there were even also black voters joining the Democratic Party. So there were a lot of reasons for the Southern Democrats retaking power. So meanwhile, in Philly, the Centennial Exposition is celebrating American progress, new machines, technology, and all that. Also curiosities, Greg, they had George Washington's wooden teeth on display. (laughs) And a certain arm from Lady Liberty, if I recall. That's right. That's right. On its way to Madison Square. Millions of visitors taking in all of these positive, upbeat exhibits, but tensions were simmering throughout the country, and this was an election year. Yes, and the Democrats had nominated the 62-year-old governor of New York, Samuel Tilden. Now, we have featured Tilden in a number of shows in the past. He's a pretty important guy in New York history, and ultimately, he's extremely wealthy, which the city benefits from today. So where did he come from? Well, Samuel Tilden was born upstate in New Lebanon, New York in 1814 into a very well-off family. Um, He was a rather sickly young man, but also really brilliant. And he spent a lot of time hunkering down with books as a child. He attended Yale, but apparently he dropped out because he couldn't stomach the food. And so he switched to NYU, uh, where he studied law. And uh, presumably ate better, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) He ate lots of Mamoon's falafel, or whatever it was in the 1830s. Oysters, bread or something. (laughs) Bread and oysters. They lined up onto McDougal. (laughs) But okay, so he was pretty well connected even when he was young. Yes, actually, through his father's connections. um, As a boy, he had already struck up a, a friendship with Martin Van Buren, who would be elected president in 1836. And Tilden would work on that campaign with him. And later, when he was living in New York, and after getting his law degree, he got very involved with Democratic politics, writing policy papers and strategy for the state Democratic Party. But building a law practice here, right? That's right. Yeah, he set up an office at 13 Pine Street in 1840. And because he was so smart and he was involved in local politics, he was soon appointed the corporate counsel for New York City. So did he, you know, like men of his stature, did he run for anything at this time? Yes, he he was recruited to run in 1845 for the state assembly as a barn burner, which was the term that was applied to Democrats who were anti-slavery. And he won. And while up in Albany, he forged a very close relationship with the governor at the time, Governor Wright. It's notable that Tilden didn't switch, like so many others during these decades, over to the Republican Party. He was anti-slavery, but he was also primarily focused on preserving the Union. So these are complicated positions during this period. Yeah, they are. But he didn't stay in Albany long because soon he was back in New York dedicating himself to his law practice and sort of developed a specialty in the mergers and acquisitions within the new flourishing railroad industry. He was a master at this. He could help buy and sell entire railroads. He was a regular Mr. Monopoly, it sounds like, right? (laughs) Seeing dollar signs everywhere. Exactly. He was very good at his job, and he really threw himself at it for many, many years, developing a reputation as a, quote, financial physician to railroads who had been, you know, afflicted by fiscal ailments. 
And yeah, he, he was incredibly successful and built a personal fortune. And presumably, I would imagine for this period, a rather eligible guy, right? You haven't mentioned a Mrs. Tilden. And so here by the Civil War, he's, he's what, like 50 years old? Right. And let's just call him a confirmed bachelor. I mean, there would be all kinds of rumors mm. about this over the years. Rumors of impending engagements. And his own political adversaries would also spread rumors that he was interested in men, not women. But Samuel Tilden would never marry. And he would, though, have a, a lot of family living with him and have lots of friends and social contacts. But he never put a ring on it. Well, in addition to this flourishing law practice, he was still an active politician, though. Yeah, uh, he became the leader of the New York Democratic Committee in 1865. But around the same time, his instincts as a reformer kicked in, which then brought him into direct conflict with the master of graft himself, William Boss Tweed, uh, whose Tammany Hall was, of course, robbing the city blind in the 1860s and up until 1871. And we have a pretty good show on this, episode 285, Boss Tweed's House of Corruption. But hold on, because Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall are, of course, Democrats, notoriously so. Mm -hmm. And so was Tilden. So shouldn't they have, you know, broken bread together on some level? Well, sure, and they did. I mean, Tilden, as a Democratic Party leader, would have had to work with Tammany quite closely. But it didn't mean that he liked them or that he could be corrupted by them. He, he was a reformer. And because also he was so rich at this time, his loyalty couldn't be bought by Tammany. So they had this strained relationship even you know, before the actual corruption and schemes were exposed. Two years before the New York Times published their big exposés of Tammany and Tweed in 1871, Tilden had already publicly come out advocating for things like honest judges. And the next year he had... He had Shocker. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? And the next year he fought Tweed on Tammany's attempts when they tried to write a new city charter, you know, which would have actually mm -hmm. given them even more control over the city. And so on. So, so then once the Times started publishing, you know, all the dirty tales of Tammany's finances in 1871, the, the city comptroller actually came to Samuel Tilden and asked Tilden to be the one who went through Tweed's bank records and, and really uncover and detail what had been going on. Tilden, the Democrat, mm -hmm. led the campaign then to purge Tammany, the Democratic political machine, purged Tammany and his cronies from power and from the Democratic Party. He did. I mean, of course, Samuel Tilden also had higher political aspirations of his own. Which I'll speak about in a second. But first, and crucial to today's story, where exactly was Samuel Tilden living at this moment? He was living in his mansion at 15 Gramercy Park, a, a very swanky address at the time, well, actually, at any time. Still, very swanky address. <laughs> uh, Gramercy Park had been developed in the 1830s, and it had been modeled after other elite enclaves with squares that had developed elsewhere in the city, including Washington Square and Union Square and others. And so in 1863, Tilden purchased number 15 Gramercy Park 
which was facing the south side of the park, from a stockbroker named George Belden. So that's where he was living throughout the 1860s, throughout the war, and then up through where you've taken us in the story here in the 1870s. Correct, yes. But in 1874, he would also purchase the neighboring home, number 14. These two homes, number 14 and 15, sat side by side, and Tilden had plans then to renovate them and combine them into one larger home. And he would get to that eventually. But first, things are about to get kind of strange here in the story. We'll get to Samuel Tilden and election night of 1876 right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So... To recap, Tilden grows incredibly popular after the downfall of Boss Tweed. To quote from author Mark D. Hirsch, following the dismantling of the Tweed ring, quote, his spare frame, ascetic appearance, and secretive nature, and a host of younger men who idolized him as a reforming crusader unique in the era of grantism and municipal corruption, only enhanced his growing reputation. It's almost like he became a superstar, even though he had been in politics for decades. Yeah, this was his moment, really. Such a superstar that he immediately became the top Democrat in the state. And in the process, actually rehabilitating the entire party in his own image. Naturally, he becomes the first choice to represent the Democrats as their candidate for governor in 1874. Despite the fact that he was running against a sitting governor, okay, there was an incumbent, the Republican John Adams Dix, Tilden handily prevailed. As governor, Tilden was singularly focused on corruption and held on to his popularity in office thanks to another scandal that he helped unmask in 1875, a somewhat similar scheme of fraud and corruption, similar to Tweed's, that had been going on for years along the Erie Canal. So he was popular, and Tilden was accused of having what one political rival called, quote, presidency of the brain. Quoting from the Daily Herald, For aught we know, that may be true enough, but we know of no more legitimate way of commending oneself for the presidency than by a vigorous hostility to rings and corruption. Well, unfortunately for him, that's 1875. The next year, of course, was a presidential year. 
And sure enough, wouldn't you know, when the Democratic Political Convention came around, there was really no other person in America who stood out as an obvious candidate. And so in that summer, 1876, at the Democratic Convention in St. Louis, Missouri, Samuel Tilden became the Democratic candidate for president, with Thomas Hendricks from Indiana as his running mate for VP. And so it seems like finally this might be Tilden's moment for the national stage. Republicans had been in the White House since Abraham Lincoln. And after the missteps by President Grant, you know, and widespread exhaustion over Reconstruction, it looked like Tilden, the reformer, might have a chance at victory. Now, it is not actually very cut and dry on the Republican side, meanwhile, because, well, first of all, Grant will not be running again. So there will be a new Republican candidate. So, you know, it's actually a little more unpredictable, maybe fun even. And I'd say that more than a few people were surprised by the outcome of the Republican convention, also held that summer in Cincinnati, Ohio. The victor and Republican candidate for president was Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, Tom... Ohioan. You were born and raised in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Was there like a lot of lore surrounding Hayes? Um, You know, did you visit his presidential library? Oh, funny you should ask, Greg. I mean, I grew up just 15 minutes away from Fremont, Ohio, home to the Hayes Presidential Library and Museum. Mm -hmm. Um, He he lived there during his life on his 25-acre estate called Spiegel Grove. And actually, one of his sons would hand over that estate to become, believe it or not, the very first presidential library in the country. Did you know yes. you were living next to that? Did you did you even go? Were you there often as a child? Oh, every weekend, yes. It's where all the cool teenagers hung out, Greg. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on, you know how it is when you grow up next to something historic, you, of course, take it for granted. But, but no more, Greg. Your appreciation for presidential libraries has greatly improved, greatly increased this year. <laughs> it has. <right>? I can't <laughs> stay out of them. All right. So Hayes was the governor of Ohio, a very well-regarded man, but he was nobody's first choice for the Republican nominee. There were two other leading candidates at the convention, James G. Blaine from Maine, mm-hmm. so Blaine from Maine, <laughs> and the senator from New York. Roscoe Conkling, who was a true New York power broker of the day. So Blaine and Conkling hated each other, going back to their years on the floor of the House of Representatives. Blaine had once said of Conkling, quote, the contempt of that large-minded gentleman is so wilting, his haughty disdain, his grandiloquent swell, his majestic, supereminent, overpowering, turkey-gobbler strut has been so crushing to myself and to all the men of the House. No comment about the turkey-gobbler strut in Congress. You can picture it. Uh, yes. Well, anyway, Conkling did actually have a strut. He was arrogant, but he was also very powerful. And so at the Republican convention, he did everything in his power to prevent Blaine from getting the nomination. And so when it actually began looking as though Conkling would not have enough support for himself for the nomination, he advised the entire New York delegation to shift their support 
to Rutherford B. Hayes, who had been in fifth place after the first round of voting. So a real underdog here. And it was in this way, in exacting political revenge, that Hayes became the Republican presidential nominee. Despite being hardly anyone's first choice, which I guess just teaches you never to get on the wrong side of Roscoe Conkling. Well, but it was really due to the political skills of Conkling for the Republicans, and on parallel, Samuel Tilden for the Democrats, it's due to those men and due also to the rising economy of New York after the Civil War, generally speaking, that national political power then gravitated to New York City. It's this moment in time where New York is at the pinnacle of national power. So let me just illustrate this, okay, by setting the stage here for the 1876 election. Essentially, this whole story is going to play out on just a few blocks. In 1876, when Mm -hmm. the center of New York cosmopolitan life was hovering around Madison Square Park. Right. In fact, let's let's start there at 23rd Street and 5th Avenue, where the 5th Avenue Hotel opened in 1859. This would become a nexus of political power for the entire state, especially among those in the Republican Party. It was essentially the political center for Republican politics in New York and eventually in the nation. In 1876, the Fifth Avenue Hotel became the Republican National Headquarters and would be central to the scandal that will soon emerge here in the story. So then were the Democratic National Headquarters also located somewhere in New York as well? Believe it or not, their headquarters were about a five to six minute walk away from the Republican headquarters at a place called the Everett House, another hotel located at 17th Street and Park Avenue. By the way, the hotel is not there today, but there is another building on the spot that takes its name, the Everett Building, and its address is 200 Park Avenue South. But the Everett House at 17th and Park, that would have certainly been convenient for Samuel Tilden with his house just what, three or four blocks away on Gramercy Mm -hmm. Park. So you're basically saying that the national election was more or less being engineered from places that were all just a few blocks away from each other, Union Square, Madison Square Park, and Gramercy Park. I mean, that's that's really incredible when you step back and think of just how, you know, vast politics is today, to think of it just so concentrated, really. You know, this is mm-hmm. the geography for some of our story today. It's where the strings are being pulled or, or the telegraph wires as dispatches from both headquarters were being sent across the country on a daily basis. Well, and even to Samuel Tilden. I mean, he had a telegraph line that ran directly into his mansion at number 15 Gramercy Park. I mean, he was the governor, after all, right? I mean, residents, residences were not often equipped with telegraphs, but there was obviously so much activity going on here at the Tilden House, a constant blur of activities and meetings. So by the summer of 1876, we had two candidates for president, Rutherford Mm -hmm. B. Hayes for the Republicans and Samuel Tilden for the Democrats. So then did they just head out and hit the trail? 
did they buy up all the space on the telegraph wires? <laughs> Actually, uh, no, they didn't. This was the days when campaigning in public was seen as actually overly ambitious and even undignified. So, uh, yeah, they did. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> Can you even imagine modern presidential candidates just sitting at home today and letting other people do the work? But that's precisely what happened in the fall of 1876. Here in the city, public opinion was most successfully swayed, actually, by the newspapers, which all back then had a more aggressive political slant than they do today, believe it or not. <laughs> I find that hard to believe, actually. I mean, of course, I don't think my paper is biased today, but all the others clearly are, are biased. Oh, absolutely. Maybe the words fair and balanced mean about as much today as they meant then. Let's just say journalistic integrity, you know, put that in quotes if you'd like, of the kind that I was taught in journalism school, that kind of objectivity really came about as a concept in the 20th century. And this time, newspapers were often organs of different political parties, and people were aware of this. Republicans, for instance, read the New York Times, which was a publication central to the downfall of Boss Tweed, but that didn't mm -hmm. mean that they necessarily liked Samuel Tilden, right, who, who was, in the mm. end, a Democrat. On August 23rd, 1876, they went with a front-page article with the headline, The Democratic Ticket, Samuel Tilden and Thomas Hendricks, an infamous record. Tilden as a secessionist at the outbreak of the war, a sympathizer with rebellion during the entire war for the Union. Okay, that is just not true. I mean, that's slander. That's not true at yes. all. Yes, and we know that he supported the Union. He, he even offered to help war planners with his insider knowledge of how the railroads worked. That's a lie. They call this type of attack waving the bloody shirt. Uh, evoking the war as a way to tar political enemies. It was obviously very effective. They kept using it, and it was actually a technique used on both sides. There were vicious insinuations spread far and wide during the campaigns. You know, a candidate can lie on Twitter or on cable news today, on, you know, wherever, um, but at least there's like somewhat of an immediate response to correct the record or to like to counterattack against the misinformation. But in 1876, misinformation spread widely and was, you know, pretty much completely unchecked. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'll go along that there is an immediate response today if you look for it. Mm -hmm. But I do take your point. Back then, it could take it could take weeks or even months to correct and clean mm -hmm. up a smear. Uh, for instance, Tilden was accused of fraudulent tax returns by the New York Times, and this scandal hung over the entire election, despite in the end very little coming of it. But the Republicans were having their own problems, as their party was severely fractured after that heated convention with Conkling and Blaine. That was ugly. But meanwhile, most Democrats were all in for Tilden. Mm -hmm. And it seemed pretty likely that Tilden was going to win. But there's a lot of nuance here that we can't address fully here in the show. But as you mentioned, Reconstruction politics was shaping the electorate. And generally speaking, by 1876, Republicans had tended to fare better in the North and Democrats in the South. 
1876, Democrats had retaken control of all Southern states, but three, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And they were the only three Southern states that still had Republican governors. Meanwhile, Democratic machines were sometimes using physical intimidation and even outright violence to return to power in those Southern states. And in some other places, it was Republicans wielding physical intimidation and death threats. And let's not forget, voting systems across the country in 1876 were wildly inconsistent and, of course, easily corrupted. As I mentioned earlier, it was an extremely dangerous and violent situation, and many in the North were tired of the years of conflict and were, frankly, ready to sacrifice enforcement of the Black vote in the South if that meant getting back to more peaceful times. Now, I'd like to add one more local complication to the national ballot here uh, before we get to Election Day. In 20 states, the 85-year-old Peter Cooper was representing the Greenback Party, which was a progressive anti-monopoly party. To this day, Peter Cooper remains the oldest person ever nominated for president and to appear on a presidential ballot. Wow. And this is Peter Cooper, the inventor, as in Cooper mm-hmm. Union, as in the man who lived at 9 Lexington Avenue, just a block north of Gramercy <laughs> Park and Samuel Tilden. Might as well bring him in. <laughs> oh, it, it even gets stranger, Tom, because his son-in-law, Abram Hewitt, uh, who was also serving in the U.S. House of Representatives, was the head of the Democratic National Committee organizing the campaign of Samuel Tilden <laughs> across from the park. I bet things were really awkward at the Cooper dinner table that Thanksgiving. Some Cooper disunion. <laughs> <laughs> the day of the election in New York has arrived, right? Uh, here we go. It's sheer pandemonium in the city. Every trick in the book is being put forth by various Democratic and Republican operatives to make voting just sheer total chaos. There were even charges of doctored ballots being distributed from the Everett House, uh, you know, here on Park Avenue, the Democratic headquarters. And yet, still in the city, there was a great turnout, huge number of voters. As soon as the polls closed that evening, thousands of people gathered in the streets outside various newspaper offices in the cities of New York and Brooklyn awaiting possible outcomes. Outside the newspapers, because, of course, you couldn't tune into the radio or obviously television for live results. No, you had to physically be there to hear the results in real time. Uh, For example, at a place called Apollo Hall at Broadway and West 28th Street, the doors swung open at 6.15 and people began filing in. So this was like as soon as the polls closed. On the stage were two blackboards with the names of the states and their allotted number of electoral votes. So throughout the night, the results were telegraphed in, and there was a astute gentleman on the stage who was updating the blackboards. You can imagine every time something changes, there's like a swell of cheering from the crowd from one end to the other. And so it kind of went like this 
all night and in several locations throughout New York. Like this is how they did election night back then. Thousands of people filling the streets. And the results were actually shouted, you know, like through the room and then down, you know, down the streets. It's like people were just shouting. And then, of course, there would be accompanying like boos and cheers or what have you. But it sounds so exciting. I mean, wouldn't you want to be there? Yeah, I mean, this gives me a thrill. This is an exciting part of the story. And this went like throughout the night, as you could imagine. To quote from the Brooklyn Times Union, quote, By half past two o'clock in the morning, the hall was only half filled by then. And at about 3.30 a.m., the New York operator telegraphed that he was going to close up for the night, adding, quote, Tilden is undoubtedly elected. Good night. The audience then gave three cheers, and the hall was closed for the night. Wow. <laughs> and and how was Tilden? Was he there? Was he watching the results? Um, well, he had been out greeting supporters all day. You know, he was like hitting the pavement. Um, he had dinner with friends then, and then like went over to the Everett House to watch and to hear some of the early results, which were very, very encouraging. People were already calling several states for Tilton, including the state of New York. He went back to his mansion on Gramercy Park and went to sleep, pretty much assuming that he was the winner. Meanwhile, Hayes was following the results from his home in Columbus, Ohio. And when he went to bed, he also thought Samuel Tilden was the victor. But of course, that's not how it played out. So what happened... Well, we need to go back up to the Fifth Avenue Hotel, and I need to introduce us to one final shady political figure named Daniel Sickles. Now, some of you may know Sickles from an incident in Washington, D.C. in 1859 when he shot and killed the son of Francis Scott Key, a a tale which I Mm. elaborate on at some length in an article on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, which I'll link to in the show notes if you're interested. Well, flash forward, election night 1876 here, his reputation has been mostly rehabilitated, as that happens in politics. Sickles, who was an ardent Republican, headed over to the Fifth Avenue Hotel at around midnight to get a first-hand report of the results. The party, of course, was essentially over here at the hotel because it was pretty much assumed that Tilden and the Democrats had won. In fact, the party chairman, Zachariah Chandler, had already retired to his bedroom at the hotel with a bottle of whiskey. Sickles then made himself at home. He headed into the chairman's office and began rifling through the latest telegrams. And he did his own little partisan math here and realized that four states were actually very much up for grabs. Oregon and the three previously mentioned southern states, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. So Sickles takes it upon himself to draft up telegrams to the party chairman in those states and then sent them under the name of Zachariah Chandler, the party chairman. The telegram read, With your state sure for Hayes, he is elected. Hold your state. In other words, make sure your states never fall in the column for Tilden. Later on, Sickles would even offer to send them troops and money to help them 
hold those states. And if it's possible, this story is about to become even more bewildering. Because meanwhile, John Reed, an editor at the New York Times, which was, as we have said, a pro-Hayes, anti-Tilden paper, had reached something of the same conclusion himself. So he raced from the Times office, which was near City Hall, to the Fifth Avenue Hotel and roused Zachariah Chandler out of his stupor and then had him draft telegrams to those four states, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and Oregon, essentially saying the same thing that Sickles did, hold your state. So not only did an editor from the New York Times send the telegraph messages, he then proceeded to use the New York Times account to pay for them. And with their help, America was about to plunge into a strange and chaotic period of democratic uncertainty. We'll get to the aftermath of the chaotic election of 1876 and a visit to Tilden's house on Gramercy Park right after this. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Okay, so election night was a long and weird and scandalous night. And then meanwhile, newspapers had to report something in the morning papers. By this time, it's the morning. And and Tilden had a lead of more than 250,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So it seemed obvious then that he had won, even to the papers that were pro-Republican. According to Roy Morris in his book, quote, the vast majority followed the lead of the Chicago Tribune, a pro-Republican paper that despaired in its headline, quote, lost the country given over to democratic greed and plunder. But over at the Times, they decided to go in another in another direction, pretty much alone among the major papers, calling it too close to call and and editorializing that it was a, quote, doubtful election. Well, I mean, doubtful because of their own meddling. Totally. And and they were claiming that the electoral votes simply weren't clear because Florida, Louisiana and South Carolina were way too close to call. Those three states, of course, who had friendly Republican governors who were following their instructions from headquarters at Madison Square. So how did the candidates react the next morning? Well, Tilden woke up thinking that he had won and carried on with his day, you know, people congratulating him. And even Hayes off in Ohio thought that it was 
clear that the voters had spoken and that he had lost. He told reporters, I think we are defeated. Even though Chandler at the Republican headquarters, uh, shaking off, you know, his rough night in the morning, proclaimed boldly that Hayes had won 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. And and therefore, Hayes had won. Okay, so what... What then happened next? Because Tilden wasn't defeated, and somebody had to be inaugurated the following March. Like, there had to be a president. So, well, I mean, in short, it was four months of unbelievable political shenanigans, you know, recounting votes, of purging votes, uh, of backroom deals, all centered around these four states that we've mentioned, Oregon, but then the three Republican-held states in the South— Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. The party had said that they would help those state governments out, and they did. Teams had arrived in the state capitals with help and assistance and lots of money. Just a real obvious, even naive point of clarification here. Hadn't Tilden won the popular votes in those states? So wouldn't he then get the electoral votes in those states? Well, this is where the history gets kind of spooky, because the Republicans controlled the state canvassing boards in these states. And so Republicans, not Democrats, would certify the state results. And they also had the power to toss out votes if they so desired, claiming, of course, that they were illegitimate or somehow, you know, illegal. And in this case, many of the claims were that Democrats had intimidated black voters before the election. Generally speaking here, these Republican election officials were just able to adjust the voting tallies? Yes, and they tossed out enough Democratic votes to make Hayes the winner in their states and thus recipient of all of those remaining electoral votes, just enough to push Hayes to 185. And so those electoral votes were then sent to D.C. to be officially counted. Oh, but wait, Greg, because it gets a little weirder. Because in each of those states, however, in that election, Democrats had actually won the governorships, which isn't a real big surprise, given the popular votes there. And so meanwhile, those governors-elects then went ahead and sent their own certified results to Washington, showing that Tilden had won in their states. Oi, two sets of electors. Now we're scraping too close to current headlines. Oh my gosh. Well, so anyway... Early December, when the Electoral College met in Washington, the facts were understood to be these. Tilden had won the popular vote by about a quarter of a million votes. But the Mm -hmm. Electoral College, which required 185 votes, was still uncertain. Tilden had 184 electoral votes. So one more to the finish line. And Hayes technically had 165, but Mm -hmm. 20 outstanding votes from Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina remained in dispute. And now we had two sets of electors driving into D.C. So what was Congress supposed to do? According to the Republicans, the acting president of the Senate, Republican Senator Thomas Ferry, had the power to determine which Southern votes to count. And thus, he would obviously choose 
the Hayes votes. But Democrats insisted, no, that this whole matter should be tossed to the House to vote on because all of those competing electors should actually just be tossed out. They kind of canceled each other out. And because neither then would have the 185 votes to win, the whole thing should just be bumped down to the House. And of course, the Democrats controlled the House, and so they would choose Tilden. So there was this impasse then in Congress. A quagmire, if you will. Something had to be done. And so on January 25th, 1877, the House and the Senate passed the Electoral Commission Act, which formed a 15-member committee to solve the problem. You couldn't just form it. You had to have an act to form it. (laughs) And how do you even do that, though, in a way that's fair? Well, as you'll see, uh, you can't. Uh, In theory, the committee would be composed of seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one independent, five from the U.S. House of Representatives, five from the U.S. Senate, and five from the Supreme Court. What? Supreme Court justices were on the committee? There were five Supreme Court justices. In fact, two justices who aligned with the Democrats and two who aligned with the Republicans and then one true independent, Justice David Davis. Now, despite Davis's previous history with the Republicans, in fact, he had been Abraham Lincoln's campaign manager, Davis was actually seen as a reliable neutral vote. He was a registered independent who would see both sides, at least theoretically, would see both sides of the issue fairly. Mm Mm-hmm. Continue. (laughs) Well, there is a, a, a slight complication. Davis was from Illinois. And interestingly, in January of 1877, the Illinois State House of Representatives just so happened to be selecting their new U.S. senator. Okay, so this being back in the days when the state houses chose the U.S. senators, you know, not it wasn't up for a vote back then. So they were they were choosing it. So right as the Electoral Commission was being decided in Washington, D.C., David Davis, who was slated to be on the commission, was Wouldn't you know, elected to become the new senator from Illinois. But wait, because he was already on the Supreme Court. He was a justice. Yeah, right. So as a result, he then steps down from the Supreme Court, which means the Electoral Commission then needs to pick another Supreme Court justice to fill his role. There aren't that many left, okay? But there are certainly no independent justices. So Justice Joseph P. Bradley from New Jersey was then chosen to fill the seat. And Bradley was, drumroll please, obviously a Republican. So then, how long did it take this fair and balanced electoral commission (laughs) to come to a decision? The entire process ran out the clock right up to March 3rd when the new president was to be sworn in. Tilden's side 
urged the commission to review the corrupted ballots in each of these states. While Hayes' side obviously supported the fact that the results, as certified by the states, had to be taken at face value or else risk violating the core principle of states' rights. So this is really an extraordinary switcheroo, if you know the landscape of politics here, given that states' rights had traditionally been a more democratic issue. In the end, the commission sided with Hayes along predictable party lines, eight votes to seven votes. And so was that it? Did this resolve the crisis? Not quite yet. The congressional Democrats had one Hail Mary up their sleeve. You know, remember Abram Hewitt, uh, Cooper's son-in-law and Tilden's campaign mm-hmm. manager, was a House member. So on February 28th, as the electoral votes were being counted officially in the House to kind of wrap it all up, you know, when they got to the state of Vermont, Hewitt jumped up and claimed a I can only describe it as a magical objection to the eligibility of electors from that state. Okay, this is a state that Hayes had actually and kind of clearly won. So this was a big hullabaloo here on the floor. Um, and when that was overturned, then he did it again with the electors from Wisconsin. Okay, but this just sounds like a stalling tactic, right? Yeah, I mean, there was it was just like sort of last minute stalling because really the whole matter was being settled, such as it could be, in a backroom deal which was happening, which has come to be known today as the Compromise of 1877. So in essence, the Southern Democrats agreed not to filibuster and then to acknowledge Rutherford B. Hayes as president with 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184 if he would essentially curry Southern Democratic influence, pulling out all the remaining troops from the South and then letting Southerners generally decide how to handle its population of black residents. A deal that would have enormous implications, and a deal that you said is a backroom deal. So is there an official record of these details anywhere? Uh, no, and I, th- I think a lot of historians question really how definite the compromise really was, and you know, even how strong Reconstruction had been by this point anyway. Regardless, with this election and this shady deal, an era had ended. To quote from historian Eric Foner, as a distinct era of national history, when Republicans controlled much or all of the South, blacks exercised significant political power and the federal government accepted the responsibility for protecting the fundamental rights of all Americans. Reconstruction had come to an end. On June 13, 1877, Samuel Tilden gave an official concession speech at the Manhattan Club located at Fifth Avenue and 15th Street. Ever the gentleman, he still made clear his anger at these results. Quote, If the men in possession of the government can, in one instance, maintain themselves in power against an adverse decision at the elections, such an example will be imitated. Temptation exists always. Devices to give the color of law and false pretenses on which to found fraudulent decisions will not be wanting. 
the wrong will grow into a practice. But then in reference to his work on the Tweed Ring and the downfall of Boss Tweed, Samuel Tilton offered a bit of hope to his listeners. Successful wrong never appears so triumphant as on the very eve of its fall. Seven years ago, a corrupt dynasty culminated in its power over the millions of people who live in the city of New York. It had conquered or bribed or flattered and won almost everybody into acquiescence. It appeared to be invincible. A year or two later, its members were in the penitentiaries or in exile. History abounds in similar examples. We must believe in the right and in the future. A great and noble nation will not sever its political from its moral life. And we should add that as intriguing as it is to run through this type of backroom, you know, political wheeling and dealing, when you say the end of Reconstruction, you're also saying the end of federal protections for millions of Black Americans in the South, Americans who had just been abandoned by the Republican Party and and who would now be subjected to new laws that would disenfranchise them and harm them in innumerable ways and ultimately lead to the passage of Jim Crow laws that would stay on the books through the mid-20th century. I mean, in truth, nobody in this story, none of these politicians and none of these political parties come out clean in this story. No reputation really is left unscathed by this whole process. The Yale historian David Blight summed it up succinctly in a lecture series on Reconstruction uh, that you can find as a podcast when he said, quote, One of the best ways to think about this election is that, frankly, the Democrats stole it, and then the Republicans stole it back. I hate to sound so cynical, but frankly, folks, that's essentially what happened, unquote. Saying that, Democrats prevented black votes in the South, and Republicans then made their own adjustments. Tilden's term as governor was also over in 1876, but he remained on the fringes of politics and was even considered a frontrunner for the presidential election of 1780. Now, his reputation was a bit besmirched, however, in a scandal involving that very telegraph line, which ran from his home here in Gramercy Park, with accusations that Tilden sent coded messages from his rooms here, bribing politicians for a favorable result during the election chaos. Now, Eventually, his name would be cleared, but the stench of this controversy pretty much lingered throughout the rest of his life. And speaking of Gramercy Park, I mentioned that in 1874, two years before this presidential election, Tilden bought his neighbor's house at number 14 Gramercy Park. Well, six years later, in 1880, he wanted to combine them somehow into one coherent mansion. Uh, so he hired none other than Calvert Vox of Central Park fame to overhaul and to, to connect their exteriors and their interiors as well. Uh, Calvert Vox of Jefferson Market fame. 
as well, actually, giving giving a nod to our last episode on the Women's House of Detention. You know, it's like our shows of recent have become a sort of where's Waldo type of situation. (laughs) Where's Calvert? Um, (laughs) Isn't that him in the stripes over there by the fireplace? But by this time, Tilden was actually in declining health. And he often spent these moments at his estate, Greystone, in Yonkers, New York. And it was here, at Greystone, where he died on August 4th, 1886. He was mourned in all the newspapers the next day, including the New York Times, not his favorite newspaper, which ran with the headline, Samuel Tilden is Dead, Passing Away of Democracy's Great Leader. But, you know, if anything, I would say that his legacy today is most notably linked to something that many New Yorkers use quite frequently. In fact, we both used it to research this show. That is, of course, the New York Public Library. Samuel Tilton was an incredible book lover. He had a vast library here on on Gramercy Park. And in his will, he created the so-called Tilden Trust with an objective to, quote, establish and maintain a free library and reading room in the city of New York. This then would in turn be combined with two pre-existing libraries in the city, the Astor Library and the Lennox Library, to form the New York Public Library in 1895. Today, the Untermeyer Park and Gardens sits on the spot of his old estate in Yonkers. And of course, his former home on Gramercy Park is still around. Well, in fact, Greg, why don't we go there now and meet up with curator Robert Yonner of the National Arts Club. The National Arts Club is the social club that has been residing in Tilden's old mansion since 1906. It's a lovely late morning here in Gramercy Park. We're on the south side of the park right now and just walking over toward Irving Place and we see the the awning that says National Arts Club and we've got Robert Yonner who is the curator and the registrar of the club who's meeting us. And Greg, he's waiting for us under the awning. Hi there, Robert. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Nice Um, nice to meet you. Wonderful to meet you. Um, Welcome to Gramercy Park South. Could you tell us a little bit about the exterior? Because it's really two buildings originally, right? It was two homes. Yes, we're standing in front of numbers 14 and 15 Gramercy Park. They were actually two separate home, merchant class homes that were built in the 1840s. They were very simple, elegant, um, kind of grilled row houses Mm -hmm. done in the old Italianate style. In 1863, Samuel Tilden, the noted politician, collector, and philanthropist. And star of today's show. And star of today's (laughs) show. He bought number 15, Gramercy Park. But it didn't Uh, look like this. It didn't look like this at all. This wonderful neo-Gothic aesthetic movement facade, sandstone facade you're looking at, this did not happen until Tilden bought number 14. He commissioned Calvert Vox, the great Mm -hmm. Calvert Vox, to unify both buildings and also to totally renovate and redesign the facade. The facade of this building is just a riot of aesthetic movement, (laughs) themes, nature, the four seasons, 
When I used to live in this neighborhood in the 90s and walk through here and dream of New York City history, I always refer to this as the building that looked back at you because it has all of these marvelous faces that are staring at us. Can you well, tell us a little bit about this? Well, faces? you know, um, Tilden was a great scholar, a great book collector, and these are men he admired. I mean, you have Dante and Goethe. There's Benjamin Franklin, mm -hmm. right. and and of course Michelangelo. So when we walk into number fifteen right now, it's it's the the main entrance of today's National Arts Club. Exactly. Let's get out from this busy, loud street and go inside into these comfy, gorgeous interiors and discuss the history of the National Arts Club a little bit more. Wonderful. Right, we just stepped inside the marble entrance and we're walking up the the we're grand staircase. Walking up the what we call the grand staircase, which was create this was not created until the club bought the property. Of course, today we're walking by magnificent pieces of art. Yes, you are. That um, again we're added much later when the club bought the property. There Inclu is Mr. Tilden, yes, including a, a new acquisition. Oh, it's a beautiful <laughs> painting of Tilden. And so it's new. This came down through Tilden's nephew, through that family, and they've given it to us on an extended loan. Mm. It's going to be unveiled um, next week, actually. Wow. So we're turning to the right here, and we've just walked into the reception parlor. Yes, and all of the beautiful lines that you see here, the beautiful Renaissance Revival arches, this room and the East Parlor that we'll go into soon, architecturally, they are pretty much the way they were when Tilden was living here and entertained extensively here. And this room features sort of at its center, a beautiful fireplace with a mirror atop of it. And then along the walls are beautiful paintings from different eras. It looks mostly late 19th century, early 20th basically, century. Basically, that's it. Mm -hmm. Late um, 19th century, early 20th century. And all of the works that are hanging in the rooms we'll be visiting are the reward of the club's Artist Life member program. When the club bought this property and they renovated it so that it could be used as a clubhouse, they realized they needed art mm. on the wall. And the then art chairman, William T. Evans, he reached out to all the major artists, not only working in New York, and they Club made an offer to these artists, give us a work of art worth $1,000, and we will <laughs> reward you with a lifetime membership. So these were the Artist Life members. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of these young American artists went to Europe to train. And this room also, we should just note, is the, the walls yeah. are covered in a kind of gold fabric and lit by a beautiful cut glass chandelier. It's a bit dim in here. It's very moody and um, very comfy. It's so welcoming. It doesn't mm -hmm. hit you in the face. So we've walked into the parlor. Again, more mirrors on fireplaces, more cut glass chandeliers, and we're sitting down at two sofas in the middle of the room, surrounded by artwork and stained glass windows and under the chandelier. 
Uh, again, we're sitting in a room in the Renaissance revival style. I mean, you see these wonderful kind of Brunelleschi arches and just the cleanliness of the lines. Uh, they, they make the space so very open. Um, so Samuel Tilden died in 1886. But by this time, because of course the events of the election and just because of his, you know, his personality and his fame, this house was very famous. Very, very famous. And it was a hub of social life, of um, intellectual life, of parties. Now, when Tilden acquired number 14 in 1874, he sort of downsized. He devoted all of his time to his library. And this is so reflected in number 14. The house is more intimate. It has a quiet feeling. Mm -hmm. And that even happened in the grand ballroom, which he turned into, of all things, he turned it into his dining room, not a palatial (laughs) dining room, but a very intimate family space. Mm. The house does reflect the two different phases of, mm-hmm. of Tilden's life. But it's interesting that the, the house that we're in right now, or the, his original home, he was in for a decade or so before buying the one next door. And during that decade, he, he continued to build this vast fortune, of course. Yes. And the year that he bought next door in 1874, he was also elected governor of New York. Correct. So, yeah. he, so he, meaning that he was also not spending that much time here. In 1874, because he would have been up in Albany as well. Yeah, yeah. But but then in 1876, of course, our story with the election, he was here on the election night that we've just spent so much time talking about. And there's that famous uh, lithograph of him standing on the um, porch. Oh, no, that picture is extraordinary. Just to think of all those people in Gramercy Park, which may not have please the neighbors but um it's such a powerful image um it's been lovely sitting here talking about number 15 but i am so anxious to share number 14 gramercy with you and the magnificent work of calvert vox let's walk through the wall (laughs) so we're walking we're walking what about six steps over here yes we are into number 14. And as you can see, this house is a a little narrower. You know, we just came out of Renaissance revival. And here we are into this beautiful aesthetic movement room, which is much more intimate. The next three rooms we're going to walk through were Tilden's library. Mm. And they were designed for intimacy, for care of his library, and for quiet. Calvert Vox always thought the best inspiration for art was found in nature. Mm. And there you have it, the leaves, the animals, the birds. And to think that he was designing this interior and exterior at the same time that he was doing projects like the Jefferson Market Library, which we just talked about in our last show. Right. I think the Jefferson Library um, was a little before. In the mm-hmm. 70s. The, yeah. yeah, the Grand Mercy facade. But I'm sure he had landscaping projects all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was definitely Going like in on. the August of his years. So like his firm was at the top of his game. So obviously having him attached to this house was extremely prestigious. Yes. 
Yes. And all of these beautiful appointments, the Lafarge window, the Portier Steinmetz um, ceilings, they were all commissioned by Vox for Tilden. And so if just in, in the room just south of us here, if we're yes. walking downtown... It looks like, um, do I see a bar in there? This, uh, th- we're still in Tilden's library, but this has been transformed into our bar wow. and Whoa. dining room. And I'm and sorry. And if you look straight above <laughs> uh-huh. you, you see the magnificent um, McDonald Dome. The installation, I believe, was completed in 1883 and again commissioned by Mr. Vox for. Mr. Tilden. And when you say magnificent, I mean, the ceiling, it's a domed stained glass ceiling. I feel like I'm in a 19th century Parisian department store. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting you say that. um, When people walk in here, of course, the first thing they say is, oh, Tiffany. (laughs) And uh, no, it's McDonald, who was a Boston glazier and was doing projects, you know, of this size and this magnitude, even a few years before Tiffany. And one of the things I love, particularly about this McDonald project, is that it's it's almost abstract, almost Eastern in its design. Mm-hmm. You know, where with Tiffany, you would get something a little more organic and, and, and flowing. Um, this has such a an elegance to it. Um, you have not had a martini in New York City, and so you've had it at this bar underneath this <laughs> dome, right? I mean, this is just the uh, height of late 19th century luxury that still happens to exist here. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, the bar is part of the club. So let's talk yes. about that because we are, as you, you've mentioned, we are standing in Tilden's former library. However, Tilden died in 1886. This, of course, did not remain a library. How did it become the National Arts Club? Okay, that's interesting. A few years after Tilden died, the mansion became a rather upscale boarding house. Mm. The club wasn't able to acquire the property until 1905. The thing that always stuns me and amazes me, that the place wasn't gutted, that Mm -hmm. all these gorgeous appointments, the glass, the carvings, everything was in place, which I think is a miraculous. Yeah. (laughs) Well done to whoever managed that that boarding house. Well, when did when did the club form? It didn't form when it moved in, right? No, the no. club formed in 1898. Its original headquarters were on 34th Street. It was quite an elaborate mansion, but it was small. And as the membership grew, as the club's mission and ideals were developed, they realized they needed a bigger space. Luckily, the property was available. The house ended right here. Mm -hmm. And then back here, there was a garden, there were utility sheds, Mm. and the club very wisely took this property and built a 14-story studio building, Uh uh, which was designed by George Post, just Ah. to guarantee 
an income for the club, mm-hmm. which was very, very wise, and it's still used today. And when you say to guarantee an income, because people were anybody could rent an apartment no, here you had or to a be a space? member, mm-hmm. but it, it meant that there was always money coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and let's back up because, as you implied with the paintings, and as the name implies, this was a club for artists. But what did the membership look like in those early days? The, the, mem- terms- the membership was not exclusively for artists, for patrons, for writers, for collectors. We were the first club to admit women on an equal basis. And um, it was a very eclectic group. But the core of artists, like the Artist Life members who created these works, we see quite a few of them lived in those beautiful studios the artists who lived there were tremendously successful. Mm-hmm. They had wonderful careers. Um, they were part of the whole New York art scene. Um, they were quite part of the National Academy of Design. And this continues? This tradition continues, continues today? Continues today. So yes. Um, the, when you say the studio building, it isn't just, it isn't studios. It's, it's apartments. Apartments, but they're apartment studios. I um, see. Paul Manship lived here. Um, Ludwig Bemelmans lived wow. here. Oh. And did he died do Madeline here? here? <laughs> um, yes, he did. In no. Fact, he was working on his last Madeline book, The Christmas That He Died. A great, great history here. And in the studio that he lived in, he left a mural, a small mural, which is still in existence and quite well protected today the great will barnett lived here mm-hmm. um everett raymond kinsler the great portrait painter wow is there um, quite a, a waiting list today we solved that problem in, um, <laughs> in, in the times past when one of these would become available it was very cloak and dagger now <laughs> when units become available we have a lottery mm. And as we're walking through here, I just, I have to say so many of these rooms strike me as familiar, like I've seen them before in movies and TV shows. What has been shot here? The film shoot that really sticks in my mind and was really quite magnificent is whenever Martin Scorsese filmed part of The Age of Innocence here, number 15 Gramercy Park was the Beaufort mansion. (laughs) I mean, totally transformed. Um, We sort of really had to empty the place, and it was re-wallpapered, re-hung, redesigned, and the members just fell in love with the paper and some of the appointments, that it remained in place for over a decade. Well, you got to live in a movie, in a way, right, was, for a small it was, time? It was fabulous, <laughs> yeah. But also you had, I think, Ms. Maisel has been here, and... Several episodes, mm-hmm. um, Kramer versus Kramer, oh, sure. oh, cool. Manhattan murder mysteries, <laughs> in the front windows. And, um, That's why I've seen it before. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this tour today. When can anybody who is not a member of the club get inside the club to see any aspect of it for themselves? Um, The public is always welcome to come visit our galleries. All of our events, um, programs, films, lectures, concerts are open to the public. Well, Robert, thank you so much for showing us around the National Arts Club. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, This is just, the opulence will stay with me for weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you.
A big thanks to Robert Yoner for showing us around the National Arts Club and the entire team over there, Nadine Heidinger and Rose Kernikin and the others. We're only sorry that we didn't ask about, you know, the secret passageways and the, the hidden tunnels allegedly underneath the National Arts Club. Greg, that's for another visit. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some images of the events which we described in today's show and some photographs and little videos that I took from our trip to the National Arts Club. And listeners, we would love for you to join us for our annual Halloween Spookfest at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. We have still a few remaining tickets to our Ghost Stories live to our live shows on October 30th and 31st, 2022. Head over to joespub.com to get your seats today. A big thank you to all who support the Bowery Boys podcast on patreon.com. Patrons now have access, speaking of live shows, uh, patrons now have access to the video of our last live show at Caveat, uh, featuring our guest Hugh Ryan, that show Jefferson Market and the Women's House of Detention. So uh, you all can make some popcorn, pour a glass of wine or what have you, um, and sit and enjoy that in the comforts of your home. And that is for patrons. In addition, those who support us on Patreon get news of live shows before everybody else. We want to give a big thanks to recent supporters of the show, Lauren A., Pranav M, Lauren W, Russ S, Julie C, Julia K, Warren S, Tyler W, and Tiffany. Thank you for supporting the Barry Boys podcast on patreon.com slash Barry Boys. Yes, thank you. Because of your support, Greg and I are able to dedicate all of our time to producing the show. We wouldn't be here without you. So thanks for joining us today as we recount the traumatic, chaotic, most scandalous events of the election of 1876. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.